Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Above the Bar podcast, where each week we belly up to the bar with a new guest, find out what they do, who they are, and what makes them great. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Above the Bar podcast. It's your host, Sean. We belly back up. It's another, oh my, I don't know what's with my screen. It's another uh, Wednesday. This is episode, so we talked about this last week, and I thought it was the right one, and I figured it out. So last week was episode 200. This is episode 201. So this is like when, if you read like Spider-Man 300 and you see the black suit, this is like the next episode after that. We figure out what happens with everything. So this is the one. So joining us today from OH10 all the way up, you know, and look, something about it. I'll tell you about Ohio Marines in a minute, or uh, Dr. John, and you'll, you'll know about it. But Dr. John is a, let's see, he's a writer. He's an actor. He's a veterinarian. He has about 75 monograms after his name <laughs> full of different. He actually has invented letters to put behind his name. It wasn't just 27. He actually came up with 28 and 29 so that he had extra letters to put behind his name. And I'm going to butcher his last name up, so we'll just see how I do with it. We have joining us from Ohio, Dr. John Bukowski. Very, very close. Bukowski. You want, is it Bukowski? Bukowski, yes. All right. Yeah, my, I like to think I'm the most uh, overeducated uh, uh, fiction writer in North America. I mean, I mean you, could, you could, I mean, you have a lot of letters after your name, Doc. I mean. Yeah, it's... So, uh, what, what they are is actually, I skipped the, B, the it's just funny, I, I don't skip the BS, but I didn't put the BS in there. <laughs> so the bachelor, right, so you, so you got your bachelor's in science, doctor's in veterinary medicine, right. PhD, Master, medical Master, doctor. Master of public health Master and health. Uh, PhD in epidemiology, which thanks to COVID, many people know that epidemiology means disease detective, not skin doctor. Well, you know, what's more impressive about it is just the simple fact that with all that lettering behind your name, you, you had time to ever think about doing anything else. So, well, let's get going here. Before we get into finding out about all the books that Doc has written and what, what he's got going on, let's go ahead and get the bar open. So over my right shoulder, folks, as we always say, it's sticker and a cause. You have something you support, something you believe in. Maybe you have 35 different monograms after your name and you need everyone to know about what's going on and you created a sticker for each one reach out to me on facebook linkedin youtube twitter twitch tiktok instagram even uh our email is the above the bar podcast let me know what you got going on i'll tell you where to send the email to or send the sticker to we put it up on the big board and we read it for you every week and guess what folks look at them two and oh ravens two and oh two and oh ravens i love it and then as always, we got to talk about our sponsors for each week. So this week's sponsor, as always, is Budget Blinds of East Greenbush and Budget Blinds of Hudson in Cooksaki, New York. Doc, you're all, you know, you, you were telling me you're all the way up in, in uh, Ohio during the summer. You know, do you have get pretty sunny where your place is? You there, Doc? John, did I freeze? Or John froze? Oh, look at that. We lost him for a second. John, you there? Yeah, we had a little technical difficulty. A little bit of technical freeze up there. So yeah, back to budget blinds. So we'll just go ahead and throw it real quick. So budget blinds of Hudson and Cooksaki, New York, and budget blinds of East Greenbush is offering 25% off your entire order in the month of September. Also on top of that, folks, they're also offering finance options through Wells Fargo Bank, anywhere between 12 to 18 months at 0% interest. Just let them know you're there to belly up to the bar and they'll be sure to help you out. All right, Doc. All that's done. It's all said and done. Let's get into to, to I, I've got to get right. your backstory first. I gotta get okay. a little bit about this backstory. So, I mean, being a veterinary doctor, that's a lot of education to start with. Yeah. Then to yeah. go into the public health side and, and medical doctory, like humans, that's a whole nother bunch of schooling. How yep. long were you in the medical? Let me know. Let's start with that. Like, how do you go from one to the other? And which was first? Like, what's a little backstory sure. on you? Sure. I've uh, I have a different kind of background for a fiction writer, as you as you can see. 
Um, I, I started in school with a great love of reading. So that's, that's my foundation. I spent many a summer in the library uh, uh, reading books, primarily because I love to read and partly because it's air conditioned. Uh, we didn't have <laughs> air conditioning. And uh, I grew up in Detroit. And, uh, but I started focusing probably in high school. I loved my English classes. I loved history, but I started focusing on science, fascinated by science. And so I went for a bachelor's of science in uh, uh, biology at Wayne State University back in Detroit and uh, set my sights on a veterinary degree. So several years of veterinary school later, I was in practice in Southeast Michigan, liked it well enough, but I got to the point where I really didn't like the life and death decisions, which you do a lot of in veterinary medicine, uh, between the euthanasia and surgeries and things like that. And started thinking about taking my science training in another direction, go become a disease detective, uh, figure out why diseases happen and uh, uh, where they're happening more. And that's when I started pursuing epidemiology, which is what that means, disease detective. Uh, doesn't mean skin doctor. It doesn't mean bug doctor. I've gotten them all. doesn't mean a guy who uh, studies language. Uh, it means disease detective, essentially, patterns of diseases and populations. And uh, got my master's and then my PhD, I MPH, that's for master's of public health. And... Uh, did that for about 15 years in uh, industry and government and spent a little time in Canada, heading up a clinical research center in Prince Edward Island. Oh. And so, so did a few different things. But one thing I noticed that as I was going through my career and the people I was working for, I was doing less and less research and more and more writing. They liked my writing and I enjoyed writing. So this kind of gets me back to my love of writing and reading. And so I did more and more of that. And then around early 2000s, around 2004, I think it was, I was working at a corporation and I left there to become a freelance medical writer. So then I became a writer full time, as it were, for about a 10 year period, 10, 12 year period where I was writing journal articles and website content and uh, things they call in uh, trade advertorials, uh, some uh, radio scripts, things like that. Oh, wow. Uh, handbooks for the, the public, lay handbooks. And uh, anybody who's ever done any writing and is working as a writer, no matter what it is, wants to write the great American novel. Sure. And and I was no exception. And so I'm, I'm plugging along doing my medical writing. And the Great Recession hit, 2008, 2009. Nobody wanted to spend any money. None of the businesses I was working for were doing that. You know, they weren't spending money on contractors. They were tucked in. So I had uh, time. Uh, my wife, fortunately, <laughs> was working. But I had the gift of time. So I said, you know, you want to write a novel, now's the time to try it. So over about a six, eight month period, I did write one, uh, a thriller novel called No Good Deed, which is still on my computer and may never see the light of day. Who knows? Really? Yeah. That's Stephen King calls them trunk novels. Back, he used to work with paper. You know, you write something and uh, you don't think it's good enough to get published. So you just kind of put it in the trunk. And but it got me hooked. Uh, business started picking up and I still kept my hand in. I uh, started working on another novel, started writing some short stories and submitting to magazines and, and uh, uh, start story collections. And uh, around 2016, I guess it was, I said, you know what? I now have the gift of time again because I've accumulated enough through my other efforts that I can now do writing uh, fiction writing full-time. And it wasn't until last year that I got my first one published. And that was Project Suicide. And I'll show you the cover. You should be able to see that. I'll, I can I'll... see the cover. I like hey. the artwork on it. Yeah, yeah, we, we did. We, uh, the publisher did a good job with that. And uh, 
Then I came out with my second one this year, which was checkout time. And uh, going from there. So, so you've had kind of an interesting journey to get where you're at. Now, you brought up, so, like, hearing your journey reminded me of a conversation I actually had today uh, where we were, I was on a, a coaching call with my old master guns. Um, he runs a program called Chaos Coaching, and we were talking. And one of the people on the call, you know, they, it's like, hey, write down your, one of your dreams, your life dreams, your 10-year goal. And the woman goes, oh, I want to write a novel. I've got a novel sitting on my computer, six chapters into it. Haven't touched it in years. And I thought about it. How many people I can think of that say, oh, well, I'm going to write a book or I want to open a restaurant or yeah. I'm going to learn yeah. an instrument. And what do you think it is for people that, you know, just like yourself, that they kind of go, I want to, I have a creativity piece that I haven't explored that I need to share with people. Cause I think all that, whether it's cooking, writing, any of that stuff, that's creativity. Sure. What do you think it is that people have that creativity gene that they want to share with people and why? I don't know. I think, I think you're right. As many people want, I, I, I break writers up into groups. There's the people who say, I want to write a novel and they never do. Then there's the people who say, I've started writing a novel or oftentimes started writing many novels because the beginning of a novel is always the easiest. Beginning and end are relatively easy. It's the middle that's tough. Um, and then there's the people who actually complete it. And then there's people who complete it and get it published. So, you know, you're, it's winnowing through the whole process. And I think the main thing about it, I mean, certainly you have to have a creative drive. I've also done uh, stage acting in, in community theater and a little regional theater. And uh, you have to have that drive, that creative drive, that that need to, uh, in, the, in, in the case of novel writing, tell a story. And the second part of it is just consistency and stick to it. Um, it's just like uh, when I was working on my PhD, which is, it's a huge project. You know, your dissertation is, is huge. It's, it's overwhelming if you think about it like that but you're working a little on it every day. And it's writing a novel is not like a lot of people think you go away to a cabin in the woods for two or three weeks and you come back. <laughs> with uh, maybe somebody does it that way, but most people I know myself included every day you write 500, 600, 1500 words, depending on what your, your word count is or how quickly you write or how creative you feel that day. And you do it every day or try to do it every day. And over a period of three, six, eight, ten months, you've got a, at least a first draft of a book, which then has to go through several drafts as you polish it before it even gets to an editor to polish it. Well, and, that's something. Mean, hold on, I want to pause you for a second there, John, sure. because you bring you bring up the point of the the editing and, and all that. What was that? You know, you write. You know, obviously, you said you had your trunk book. Right. You got that one that'll never see the light of day. A few of those, yeah. Oh, okay. So a few of those. But you know, you get to that first book that folks, and if you're looking for what John's got out there, you can go to thrillerjohnb.net and it's just like it sounds. Thriller John J O H N the letter B dot net, and you can see what John's got going on. But what was that like when you finally whittled it down to where you felt like, okay, I'm done at this point. And you hand it to that editor and then they begin to butcher what you right. think is right. great. How did you approach that? Well, the, the revision problem for the author or the revision process for the author is you get your first draft, then you let it sit because uh, you don't want to start revising it right away. You're going to miss a lot of things because it's too familiar. So you let it sit for two, three, four weeks. And then you do a second revision and you tighten and you say, boy, this this doesn't seem to work. Uh, this slows down the, the plot, whatever. And you work and you tighten and you maybe do three or four of these. And in this process, you might send it to a couple of friend writers or people you trust as readers and say, give me some feedback. 
did it hold your attention? Were there, did you notice obvious plot holes or uh, uh, continuity problems? You know, the eyes were blue here and later on they're brown, things like that. And they give you feedback. You take what you think is important out of that. And then it finally goes to the editor. Now, I always think that uh, working with an editor, in my case, it was uh, um, an editor over at Pathfinder Press, where I, where I was published. Um, the, it's, it's kind of like working with a physical therapist. You both love them and you hate them because they're helping you. But at the same time, they're telling you some of your stuff doesn't work. Um, and so it's a painful process, but God bless them because you can never see it the way the reader is going to see it because you wrote it. It's in your head. Uh, you fill in the blanks. Uh, you know what the movie looks like and you're trying to describe it to other people in an entertaining way. Um, and that's where the editors really come in. They say, you know, this is a beautiful piece of writing, but it slows the plot down or it, it doesn't, it makes your character look bad or whatever. And uh, you, you consider it, you don't take it all. But in my case with Doug, I, I took, I'd say 85% of it. Uh, when you've got a good editor, that's, that's what happens. You learn to trust them. It has and, to be a comfort level. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, then it goes, you know, there's certainly uh, the final, what they used to call page proofs and stuff like that, where you and the editor and the publisher are all looking through it, looking for problems uh, before it goes to press. And that whole process from the time that you sit down to write until it's actually a book is probably about two years. So, you know what? You say it's two years, but then I think about some of these writers that are out there. Like you used to read a lot of Dean R. Koontz myself back right. when he still had an R in the middle of his name. Right. Uh, and, and he, you know, he felt like he was cranking out books all the time. Now I, I you got a quick question here from a, another Marine just retired friend of mine. He says, how do you think the writing process could be applied to writing college courses? The turn, the turn in process is so short. You don't get the option to give the pause you just mentioned. So he's talking about like going, right. doing college papers and they're like, Hey, I need seven pages by the end of this week, right, and it's uh, right. already Tuesday. Right. Well, that's that's a whole different kettle of fish. That's more like writing short stories, where you can crank out a first draft in a few days. Uh, you know, it's only three thousand words. You know, a novel's ninety thousand words. Um, and there, they're trying to uh, basically teach you how to write by having you write. Because there's two things you want to be a, a fiction writer. There's two things you got to do. You got to read a lot of fiction, preferably fiction in the genre you like to write in. I hear people say, I don't have time to read. It's like, well, then you're, you're not going to be a very good writer. You're not going to learn anything because it's like trying to build a house without having blueprints or without reading a manual on how to do it. Uh, good authors that are published, they give you that. You learn over years what good writing looks like. Um, and the other thing you got to do is you got to write a lot. Uh, you know, so that's one of the things college writing courses do is they get you writing. They force you to write because, as you say, you know, you haven't you haven't worked on your novel in years. Um, yeah, no, it, it's it. But listen to me in my head, John, <laughs> I'm not criticizing. It's, it's the most amazing three book series that I've played in my head over and over. It's so great. And just I got to tell you, George is from Tennessee also. You know, just so you know, George okay. is originally from Tennessee. So, you know, if you need any, I know you said you just, you got your summer or your winter house there. Yeah. He might be able to give you some Tennessee information, wow, you know, good. but it, it's just so interesting to me that, you know, now everybody talks about writing styles, you know, okay. who influenced you. And I can tell you like from deploying in the services in the Marine Corps, I read a lot of Koontz, like I said, Red King, um, and then I got into, I can't think of his name right now, the guy who wrote the um, the Last Kingdom series that was on Netflix. Um, not George Ud Martin. Uh, no, no, not George R. Martin. This one, actually, if you if you love good writing, um, he that whole series on Netflix called The Last Kingdom is about the 
real historical event of the how England becomes Britain and oh, okay. yeah. gets combined. But what the guy did was he took real true historical events and he created his own character named Uhtred of Bedenburg and added him into all the stories. Yeah, historical at, fiction. Yeah. Historical fiction and made his character into kind of the catalyst that drove everything. Like he was the real thing that was happening that nobody knew he was there. And then, but at the end of all his books, he puts about, I guess he probably puts a good five to 10 pages at the end of the book of the real historical events of what truly, truly happened, where this person died or how this person uh, came into power. Sure. It's, he's a great writer, but those are the people that like I read and sparked my imagination. And I come from that uh, born in 76, eighties, early eighties, sci-fi. I love all that stuff. Right. You know, there, there's always a government in my mind. There's always a government organization that is behind everything <laughs> that's running everything from the shadows that you don't know about. Like, I love that stuff. I tr like the that's, CIA that's, is that's nothing. A lot of project suicide. Yeah. Yeah. So what were the, some of the, you know, obviously you look like you're probably maybe a year or two younger than me. So I don't know what influenced your writing, but what were actually, some of the, actually I was born in 56. Okay, so gosh, you're you're 20 years older than me. So, you know, we're right there. We're right there. But what are what are some of the the folks that you took from? Because you you do come from a generation that I always feel like like I feel like there's like this big skip in reading where like you come from a generation of readers, then there's this generation that wasn't really big into it. And then like my children are all readers, like Harry Potter. Uh, right. I got introduced to the Scythe series recently. We've talked about like these these book series is for young readers. What were some of the writers that you you were influenced by, and, and do you see them in your writing? Right. Well, my well, at least my first two novels are kind of techno thrillers. So Michael Crichton comes in there, um, but I would say my big three of influences was first of all Ernest Hemingway. He's the man who really defined how you do a novel in the 20th century, uh, American novels anyway. He, he's the man in that respect. Absolutely. Um, second one is Stephen King. Uh, I think you learn more about characters and how to write them so that there are people like them uh, from Stephen King than just about anybody. And the third one is Elmore Leonard. If you want to learn dialogue, he wrote uh, Get Westerns. Shorty. He wrote a bunch of Westerns. He wrote Get Shorty. He wrote Justified, that uh, series that came out just before you, uh, it came out a couple years before. I he, love. Yeah. So listen, Raylan. Timothy Oliphant. Yeah. Is that was, that was Raylan Givens. Yeah. You know, they're character. You know, that's a, uh, he has a new. Uh, yes. Th there's a new. I, ha I only watched the first episode of it and, and oh, I want to oh, catch up on it because. But I don't know, like the new villain in that one. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen it yet. He, so they they want another version of uh, God. I can of Boyd Crowder, right? He's he's not really the actor who played Boyd is probably to me one of the most diverse yeah. actors, character actors. Because Wade Dragons, yes. Well, he played a transvestite hooker in um. What's the motor uh, Sons of Anarchy? Okay. Then he's on uh, Veep uh, as the the vice principal in that show on HBO, which was a comedy. Right. He like the the type of, and then he had the uh, he had a TV series. I don't know if the TV series is gone now, where he was a single dad looking for where he was more concerned about raising his kids than he was. Uh, getting back out into the dating world after his wife died, and and it's the show was all about his friends trying to trying to push him that way. He is just him and Timothy Oliphant yeah, together. They're, 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 they they worked well together. Both very good actors. I would really agree with you on that. Uh, and that's one of the keys if you want to write a good villain, a memorable villain that people love to hate. They have to be interesting. They can't be uh, a snidely whiplash kind of villain uh, or just plain evil. <laughs> because as they say, no villain in a, in whether it's in a uh, theatrical production, a movie, 
or in a novel, thinks of themselves as evil. No. They're, they're all doing what they think is good for themselves, for, you know, for... For humanity. Something. Right. Uh, even Hannibal Lecter. And there's an example of a, yeah. great, of a great villain who is very entertaining. Uh, the evil is always just below the surface underneath his charm. Um, and, uh, and you could say the same thing about Boyd Crowder. You know, Absolutely. he's so eloquent and so funny and so personable, you know, and then he shoots somebody in the back of the head, you know, like, like it was <laughs> like, I, I, I told you what was going to happen. I let right. you know how this was going right. to go. Right. All I asked of you was to do this one thing and you just couldn't do. So I'm just going to shoot you now. Right. Be done with it. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely. So, yeah. That is, that is one of the keys I think to writing a good villain is to have an, have them be interesting, have people want to get into their heads and, and, and what are they about? You have to hate them. So yeah. I always, uh, so obviously I, I still love TV. Did you watch the new uh, Lost in Space on no. Netflix? I remember the old one from the 60s. So, <laughs> so the old one, Dr. Smith was, wasn't so, he was, wasn't so hateable. He was, he, he was, was just bummer. Yeah. Yeah, he was very bumbling. He's like, oh, we're going to go this way. A, pomp a pompous bumbler, yeah. Right. Well, if you can get a chance to watch the new one on Netflix, and I don't know if you watch any Netflix, John, but the they have Dr. Smith is a woman in this. It's a female okay. actress. And she's an amazing actress to start with. I can't think of her name right now. Uh, Nate will send it to me in a minute. But she does such an amazing job of how she plays Dr. Smith that I hate her in the most loving way as a person. She's probably a great person, right. but her character of Dr. Smith, you just want to hate. So when you talk about, you know, you have to make your character that interesting that your, your reader hates it. How do you draw that? Like in your life experiences, you know, and I don't, I don't need you to be like, look, my first boss when I worked at, right, right, right. you know, the roller rink, but you can, he's probably gone by now, but um, what do you draw from, or is there a particular like, Hey, you know, you were in epidemiology. I, I know that, you know, Hey, this was the person that this, and you know, this was the name of the disease. And this is how I, I, I associate this. Is there anything along those lines that you were able to draw from to make that villain for you? Oh, John locked up on us. We had him. He froze on us. I think he has such an amazing question just now that our guest was completely taken back and froze completely up on this. So, folks, while we're waiting for John to come back, if Nate's still hanging out there, Nate and I are working on another episode of uh, After the Lights Go Out for the Above the Bar podcast. That'll be, hopefully we're doing it on the 30th. Uh, John just had a pop off. He'll be right back, but he'll, Hopefully we're doing that one on the 30th while we're waiting for, for the good man, to, the good doctor to come back here. Let me ask this question. What are some of the characters that, you know, from books that everybody's read that maybe you absolutely just despise and you feel like they were written so well that uh, I'm super excited to Nate. You have to let me know. I sent you a text. You didn't get back to me, but uh, you were just were written so well. Like my son, introduced me to this scythe series i've talked about a couple of times here recently and the villain in this uh the name was goddard and based on the uh the doctor uh the scientist goddard because all the all these characters and he was just everything about him was just arrogant and pompous but he always had this feel of a, a psychopath that didn't didn't know he was because of the world they lived in that wasn't a terminology nobody would be like that so is there any characters that others think they're like hey man this this particular one just really always got to me or always uh was the one that you know really made got under my skin like i said dr smith was an amazing one for me on tv boy crowder's one that like you you would love like he was almost like a negan in the walking dead, I, I still firmly believe that if they would have written walking dead, 
the the book series instead of Rick being the initial person that they created to go through the series to be the main kind of linchpin for the, for everything if you would have been introduced to Negan at the beginning i think most of us would have felt like Rick and them were the bad guys and you know to me that's a great villain somebody that you don't realize who they are who the villain is at that time so hopefully the good doctor will be back with us here in a moment. I'm hoping everything's uh, doing all right for him. Uh, also, as we're thinking about it, as things are going along here, I have to recommend to everyone, when you get a chance, make sure that you check out uh, the Outlaws podcast. That is our, our good friends over uh, George, another George. Uh George and uh, Highland, check out their their show. Uh, I don't know if we're gonna get the good doctor back here, folks. We'll see here. Um, we're running into that that moment where normally most people make it back by now. Hopefully, his uh, internet didn't go completely poo poo. He's in he's in Ohio, so you never know with those guys. But you know how this works. If he doesn't come back, I'm gonna find out which one of y'all are still out there listening along with us, and then I'm gonna have one of you guys come on. And join us, and then that's how this is. We're gonna finish this off. Uh, is anybody else writing a book? Because that's what we're doing today. We're talking about writers, so we seem to have lost the doctor. I don't know if he's gonna make it back or not. Um, yeah, I don't know, and I don't have a phone number. This is what live. If anyone ever thought that they could be, do live TV or live anything, this is live. This is what live looks like. You just accept when things don't happen the way you thought they were and you run with it and you make it happen. And I, I still got 20, 27 minutes and uh, 45 seconds worth of show. So I hope everybody's enjoying themselves. Nate, you might, George, are you still out there, George? Let me know if you're out there. You or Nate, let's see who else is out there. There's four of you watching one. Somebody's coming on. Cause I'm not good. Just talking by myself. Because the next thing you know, we're going to be talking sports or something. All right, George, here you go. Uh, keep an eye out on your uh, keep an eye out on your uh, Facebook Messenger. Because uh, enter name George Peevler. Uh, 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 uh. Send. There you go, George. Go look at your uh, Facebook Messenger. So my partial no novel, I will tell you about it. So I actually wanted to write a three-book series because I don't know why all series is for books have to be three. But it actually was based on, if you've ever heard of the Seneca White Deer in, here in New York, it's a Bract Army base, or Bract Army base. Bract was the Base Relocation and Closure Act. Uh, another one of those Clinton genius moves, just killing small towns. But uh, it was... That base was also, you know, they held nuclear weapons there and all kinds of stuff. But my book was, I went hunting out there because they had these Seneca white deer. They're all white deer. They're not albino. And I was like sitting on, they're called magazines. They're stone, they're concrete buildings. They have grass all over them. And I was sitting there and thinking to myself, because connected to this place is what's called Five Star Prison, which is New York State's most maximum security facility like that's where they keep uh there's a serial killer called the egg man and some other folks that's where they keep them at is up there so i thought about it and, and like i said earlier on uh the, the the deer did not hunt for me uh nate but i thought about it i was like man this would be an interesting place because you couldn't drive back or walk back to your hunting spot before we started hunting they put us all in the bed of a pickup truck and drove us to our individual magazines and left you there. And at the end of the hunt, they just came and got you. There really wasn't any way to call for help. If there was an emergency, you know, you just had to kind of know where everybody was at. So I thought about it. And again, I love government conspiracy stuff and I love uh, heavy sci-fi. So my thought was, imagine if, underneath of this place, like through a door of one of these magazines, 
there was a facility that the government was testing, not para, not like space stuff, but theor paranormal theories. Like if somebody said, oh, hey, you know, this is what the chupacabra is, you know, and they had chupacabras there or, you know, we've all heard of werewolves and all these different things. And they had them housed there. And what they would do is they would tell the prisoners, hey, we'll commute your sentence. But you got to let us, you know, do some testing on you, some paranormal testing when it's done. If nothing happened, you'll go free. If something did happen, you know, then we know what the deal is, but we'll, we'll address it and we'll take care of you. And within there, it was going to be everything was set up in teams of two. So they would have one person who was just a straight up, uh, not necessarily James Bond, but uh, more of like a Jason Bourne, hand-to-hand -hand combat, weapons expert kind of person. And they would always be paired with a somebody of a paranormal nature, whether they be a Native American shaman or, you know, a medicine man from some tribe in the South, in the, in South America, but they would always be paired. So my story was that a book that I wrote, like I said, most of it is just about how this one thing called the Umbra and all it was, was a dot of black liquid that when it got, it would feed on people's paranormal paranoia and anxiety. And once it got into your, but it only could get in through your eye. So it made it more difficult. But uh, so they had captured it and they were trying to test it and they put it in this guy's eye. And uh, this guy was a horrible person. He was like, he was in jail for uh, rape, murder, murdered his father. He was always a bad apple, um, all these things. And they put it in his eye and it wasn't working because the umber knew because it was a, it was actually a life form that had fallen to earth uh, long ago and was able to just kind of keep jumping host to host. And it was in his eye and it wasn't working. It wasn't doing nothing to him because the Umbra knew what it was doing and knew that if it didn't react, they would just think that it was nothing to it. Well, it waits until there's a situation and the doors aren't, aren't closed right. They think there's nothing going on. And it does what it does, which is start feeding on this guy's uh, kind of like a little bit like a venom. Yeah, George, a little bit like a venom. Uh, I never actually put that together, but yes, but without the whole suit, like it didn't go all over your body. It's just in your eye. But once it, it activated, uh, its whole thing was to cause you to live through your most damaging and anxious feeling memories consciously constantly constantly because that's what it was feeding when that was its energy source its life force and uh because of this it causes this guy to lose his mind and escape but when he does he also kicks open multiple cells within this facility so that was also what was going to feed to the other two books because you were going to find out how the uh the werewolf with a PhD got out how the real chupacabras got out and all these things along those lines. And, but he gets out into the woods where these guys are out hunting. It's that same facility and they're out hunting. And because the alarms are going off, um, the truck that was supposed to get them never comes. And there's these uh, four hunters sitting out there. And the one uh, is a gentleman's son who, he has uh, Asperger's and, you know, he's very high functioning. Hunting's not a problem, but it's just more social and emotional type type stuff. And the book is just about them surviving because now the Umbra is, is has caught up with them. And now, George, you're going to have to wait because John's back. So I can't <laughs> have to wait to hear more about my book when, when I have a chance to tell you more about it. Yeah. I I'm sorry about that. My just, right. just went down. I don't know why it happens, you know, but well, George asked my buddy, George Peebler asked about my book uh, next time, but I'll tell you, George, it's a three book series. You'd love how my theory, my whole uh, werewolf thing was completely a departure from anything that uh, had been out there. Basically, you know, 
werewolf werewolf children were raised by their fathers who were always single dads. And it was a very, you know, it it was lycanthropy was more of a an ailment than it was anything. So, but back to my question for you, John, if you didn't catch the whole thing, which was how do you draw your information? Look at that. You see how I do that, folks? I just run right back into it. Right. I don't right. miss a beat. But how do you what do you draw from or what are the characters that you pull from when you're making that that your villain to make them into that, you know, either lovable, lovably hateful character? Right. Well, that's the thing. Characters, it's it's like being an actor. And I apologize. I'm on my phone. So it's it's, it's fun. Uh, uh, but they're, people, they're like with an actor, they're drawn from you through you. So some of it is you, some of it is people you know, some of it is composites of people you know, some of it is people you've seen on TV and movies. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, I, I remember seeing, I don't remember the uh, author's name, but a relatively well-known author speak at uh, Thriller, Thriller Fest uh, in New York a few years ago. And he said that uh, he never describes a bar room or an office to any great degree because people know what they look like. Right. So the same thing, you can use what people have seen in movies and TV and play off of that as well. So characters can come from everywhere. They come from your own life. They come from uh, characters you've read or seen in movies. And you take bits and pieces of those with the idea of you know, what makes them interesting to you? And writing is always a very specific thing. You hope it's generalizable, but you can't write for everybody. You have to write for you and what you think is interesting, what you like. And hopefully that will be generalizable to enough readers that it will be kind of universal. So now is there any, let me ask this one then, is there any person whether political, I don't care what it is, that you like, this is always where your where your framework starts for those characters. Also, your hero characters. Every every good villain needs a good hero. Right. Like, is there somebody that you say, you know, I start them, here's my framework, and then I build it off of this? Not so much. Like I said, it's it's uh it's all it's like, like with acting, I always come back to that because it's, you're bringing it all through you. Just like in acting, you've, you've seen other people, you have, you've built the character based on many different things, but it all comes through you and your emotions and your thoughts and what you thought of other people that you've seen or what you, you know, we're authors are like actors and we're good people watchers. We like to see how people behave in restaurants and what have you. And you can use bits and pieces of that uh, good and bad uh, in your writing. So for me, at least, it's no one thing. Uh, it's a composite. The characters, in some cases, the characters kind of spring kind of... Uh, the, the last book I wrote, Checkout Time, both the villain and my heroes, and there's really kind of two heroes. There's uh, uh, my my scientist hero and then my FBI uh, uh, lady hero. And they all kind of sprang just almost full formed. You can hear them talk in your head and they go back and forth. And uh, it, it's, it's larger part of imagination. So we're, we're getting close. We're getting close to that closing time at the bar here, John. So I want to make <laughs> sure I get into everything now. I missed 10, 10 minutes of it. Yeah, that's all right. You know what? <laughs> if, if you go when you go back and listen to it, you'll get 10 minutes of my book. Okay, great. I, you, you get like 10 minutes of what my book is. I'm waiting for, for George or Nate to tell me, you know, the whole idea of it sounds okay or it sucks. And I expect truths from both of them. Um, but how much of your, so, you know, like you said, epidemiology, you know, investigation, seeing how things come from. When you write, do you draw from that investigative process? Like I know some writers, they write about things that there's like, uh, what's his name? Um, not Crichton, but uh, Michael, uh, is it Lincoln Lawyer? Colton? Uh, oh, um, Lincoln Lawyer. I'm trying to think. I can't. Uh, I'm it's Michael something. Uh, 
Michael Conley, Conley, Conley. Conley, yes. So, you know, if you read Michael Conley's stuff, you know, he was a journalist, right? investigative journalist. So he uses a lot of that investigative skills to add to his books, that investigative process. But he was obviously he was into crime invest crime uh, right. writing in the newspaper, just fed it over. I heard the scientist, you know, in your book. So how much of that are you drawing from when writing? Well, it's there's the old saying, write what you know. And the reason for that is that every book has a certain amount of research. I teach a workshop on research. I just taught it in Louisville this past uh, summer. And every book has some research in it. And you want to have enough that you you draw the reader in without boring them. So the idea of write what you know is it's going to be a whole lot more realistic if I write about science and medicine than if I write about uh, aircraft maintenance. You know, now it doesn't mean a plumber can't write a book about lawyers. He's just got to do a lot more research. So, yes, some of that is in my books, especially, like I said, they're techno thrillers. So there's a little technical material, but it's there to think, make you feel like you're behind the scenes. You're looking at how this is really done. Um, And it sounds plausible. And it sounds a little bit technical. And it's enough to draw you in. It's like being a good con man. You know, a con man doesn't start off with, would you like to buy the Brooklyn Bridge? They start off giving you all kinds of realistic things where people are talking to them about finance and stuff. They get you involved. Then they slip in the bullshit, if you mind me saying that. You're good. You're you're, you're perfectly good. That's probably the least thing that's ever been said. That's what you try to do with writing, especially a techno thriller or historical fiction or something. Historical fiction, you have to do enough research to make it. The people who know history are going to say, that's plausible. That makes sense. I'm going to buy into it. You know, I'm going to suspend my disbelief and then I'll go along. I think George is directing this recruiter comment at me uh, because that's what we did as Marine Corps recruiters. We gave (laughs) you just enough. Yeah. Just enough information about how great things were going to be. And then let me slip my bullshit in there. Well, like, well that's, what I, that's what I always liked about Michael Crichton's writing and Robin Cook to a certain extent is they made you feel you were behind the scenes in uh, the investigation of a new bug or building a dinosaur or whatever. But it's still fiction. They're right. still making stuff up, but they start off by getting you in the mindset you're going to believe right like this is gonna this could happen yeah and then and guess what they you did hear that like they say that by 2024 we'll have woolly mammoths back right did you did you see that uh i i've not seen that but yeah look into that one they figured out how to use dna uh and, and get it all back Ro- robert said he had a great re- a great recruiter that's because look robert that's because you were in the army Listen to me. Your recruiter was like probably like you and him went to the bar, had a couple packs of cigarettes. As a recruiter, we just nothing like that. We abuse them like <laughs> you suck. Well, no one likes you. Here, here's a good example. In uh, Project Suicide, my first novel, it's a story about how a cure for Alzheimer's disease is perverted into an assassination drug. And there's some genetics in it. And some of the genetics about Alzheimer's is true. And some of the stuff I have is BS about Alzheimer's and about I invent a gene called a survivability gene or a longevity. uh, I think I I forget what I called it exactly, but uh, a gene for self-preservation so that uh, when you give the cure for Alzheimer's, it also binds to this self-preservation gene. And as your sense of self comes back, you lose your sense of self-preservation and you commit suicide. So, oh. so that's why it's a great assassination drug because you give it to somebody and they kill themselves. And like I said, there's a certain amount that's real and I have the background where I can make it sound plausible. And then when I feed in the stuff that's not real, it still sounds plausible. And that gets people on the, on the, on the, to, to, to take the ride. 
I like it. Get on so the now, roller coaster. Now, when's now you have the two books? Is there is there a third coming? And again, folks, if you want to know what John's got going on, it's thriller t h r i l l e r John J o h n the letter b dot net thriller John b dot net. Is there another one coming? You know, we're gonna have well, a series. I, I, I'm working. I'm I'm working on a, a sequel to Project Suicide. I'm about three quarters of the way through that. I'm also working on a couple other books. Like I said, when you get pauses in these books, you work on something else because you do it every day. Um, but yeah, Project Suicide is out there. Uh, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any of those things. Same with Checkout Time. Easiest way to get to them, ProjectSuicideNovel.com. Check outside checkouttimenovel.com takes you directly to Amazon. And uh, so, yeah, I'm working on some other books. Uh, stay tuned. Now, are they all, is, I know those two are, are thrillers, like you said, the techno right. thrillers. Is that is that the genre we're staying with or are you going to make a left turn into um, like, all of a sudden the next one's a cookbook or something? Well, <laughs> Just... well I've, got, I've got another one that I've completed and I've started to pitch it. I don't know uh, where it's going to go, but it's more of a, uh, I would, I would call it uh, lifetime movie kind of, uh, kind of novel, you know, Rom they, you wrote a rom-com with it. Well, not quite romantic comedy, but it's more chiclet. Okay. It's about a man who is uh, about my age, who's never had children and his wife dies and now he wants a child. And uh, it intersects with a girl in the community and a parish priest. And, uh, intrigue back and forth a stalker uh a cop that the girl becomes involved with there's a whole bunch going on uh but it's it's not really a thriller i mean interesting i was gonna say like you could have really taken a left turn with that movie. and now he wants a child so he's been going around the town kidnapping all the children <laughs> and hiding them under his steps and no one can find them no one knows where will they that's, be next that's 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 another way to take it see and that's the thing with uh, with writing, it's the great what if, you know. Yeah, when I when I was think, working on checkout time, which is about a uh, extortion bomber trying to extort money from uh, uh, hotel chains by bombing hotels, and when I, when I first came up with the idea, I was in a hotel. I looked at the ceiling; there was a trap door, and uh -huh. I said, "Wow, you could put anything up there. What could you put up there? You could put microfilm, and then you've got a." political espionage thriller you could put what if you put uh, uh, mob money up there well then you've got a whole nother type of thriller i went with with uh, a bomb and well if you got a bomb why is he putting the bomb up there well i came up with extortion so it's wow. all the what ifs and the what if leads to what if what leads to what if and that's the great thing is you is uh stephen king in his uh book and movie the dark half he says that most people have, everybody has two selves or multiple selves, but they hide most of them. The fiction writer doesn't hide them. The fiction writer it. lets them come out and explore. And uh, <laughs> if you don't do that, your, your writing sounds stilted. You know, it's like reading a uh, textbook or something. I love it. John, I, I mean, just... See, and I love the imagination there. I think I was always that kid. Yeah. I, well, kids see, I was are great with that. Kids kids play. I used to play soldier as a kid and cowboy oh, yeah. and, and all those things, gang, gangster, whatever. And kids are great like that. We kind of lose some of that when we get older. Fiction writer doesn't have to. Yeah, that's yeah. for me, I was ruined by uh, uh, George Romero's. Walking or uh, the, Dawn of the Dead, Dawn not Night of the Living yeah. Dead, but Dawn of the Night Dead. Dawn of the Dead, yeah, yeah. Dawn of the Dead ruined me as a kid, and it just got my mind going. <laughs> and, and and I still to this day, I I still I think that's why I have like like I have like bug out bags and stuff like it's it's not no one's invading. I'm not right. worried about that. It's the zombies I'm worried about. <laughs> and, uh, zombies I mean, is one is one thing I can't. Zombie apocalypse is one thing I can't get into. Because they never sell it as, uh, from a science fiction point of view, it's totally impossible. Dead tissue does not, cannot be animated that way. I mean, a whole process goes on when things die. I mean, you, you've smelled something that's been dead for more than an hour or two, you know. But they, if they sold it as magic, 
and then I can buy it, you know, zombies from voodoo rising from the, from the, from the grave, mm. but they try to sell it as a virus or something. I well, can't buy that. Well, the walking dead does it as, um, it wasn't, it was a infection. Right. Given, given to the whole planet, like released and they, nobody knows how it came because they had the CDC at the in season one and they were trying right. to figure out what was going out. Because yeah, whenever whenever they try to sell it as an infection or something, I can't buy it. I, I know too much medicine. Uh, see, that's you know those things. For me, I'm sold. But <laughs> see, that's the difference between like I like Star Wars. My best friend likes Star Trek. Star right. Wars, you know, the science f- folks are like, nothing in Star Wars works. Nothing whatsoever works. And then, but they all the science people are like, Star Trek is amazing. Everything, you know, there's some semblance of reality that could could happen here they worked on it i like star wars i like i like it do you ever uh see the family guy version of star wars with uh, yes with stewie and they talk about the death star well there's one little design flaw but it's really hardly mentionable it's like the planet blows up you know whoa 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 (laughs) i love it well well look folks we got to get ready to, to let the doc get back to all of his writing making things happen so we all have stuff to read again make sure you're checking out thrillerjohnb.net you're seeing what he's got going on seeing what's happening in his world we've got the two books out there check out time and uh paint suicide project suicide i almost said painkiller uh project suicide make sure you're checking them out they're on amazon uh any audio versions yay nay no no not at this time no all right no audio kindle hard hard cover and paperback so make sure you're taking the time. And look, if you've got a book of your own, dust it off. See what you got going on there. You know, every time I get a writer on here, they always tell me, you know, take a moment, man. Write a page a day. Do something. Yeah. I've gone back and I've read what I wrote. I don't want to do I don't want to do the rewrite. Just so you know, I don't want to do the rewrite. I've had people read it and they're like, you do realize it. You got some flow issues here. And I'm like, then you fix it. I've got I've already seen the movie. Well, it's all what, in here. You know what they say? You don't really get to the writing until you're revising. Oh, yes, that's I can't. the real. That's the real writing. I would have to hire somebody to revise it, to, to do all that for me, because it's all in here. And once it's out, it's out. It's done. That's me. But look, folks, we're never done here at the Above the Bar podcast. We got another show next Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. As I say every week, if you found me through John or John, uh, or John. If you found me through John or John through me, make sure you're taking a minute, figure out whatever social media you're, you're checking us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, all those different places. Give a like, follow, share. You, you may sound cliche, but listen to me, that five star that you put on Apple podcast, that's how these ratings work. And, that and, is the and, algorithm. And the same thing with uh, if you like a book by any author. Go on, on Amazon, Amazon. Yes. Go on Goodreads. Give it a review and a few stars. Takes five minutes, but it means a whole lot. And it really changes things. That's how these algorithms work. Yep. The more stars, the more comments, the more likes, things bump up. People start finding them. So make sure you do that for John. Make sure you do that for us. We're going to be back next week. Now, don't log right off on me, John. We'll talk for a moment after the show's over. But like I said, this is a uh, oh, look, George says, great show. Thanks, Doc. Um, Absolutely, George. Thank you. We'll we'll talk soon. Um, Now, before this show ends, we have a tradition. And like I said, this is episode 201. Uh, At the end of every episode, the guest always gets the final word. So, Doc, what is your final word? Well, to anybody who wants to write, write. You can't, you can't read and write. You can't be a writer without reading and writing. And that's, uh, that's something that a lot of uh, the newer generations tend to forget is uh, writing a text message is not the same thing. <laughs> write a short story, work on a novel, uh, write a, uh, 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 a journal every day, something that's a little bit more creative and one step at a time. All righty, folks, be sure to push your stool in. This has been a Second Front podcast presentation found on Apple, Spotify, and wherever podcasts can be found. 